Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Generally, I think of my audience as predominantly male, But it's become very obvious to me that in today's modern world, women are everywhere that men are, and some women are dominating fields where men used to dominate. Whether it's the courtroom and the judicial bench, or whether it's a hospital operating room, we see more and more women asserting themselves and doing jobs that previously they were told they couldn't do. Like 33 years ago when I was told that women in talk radio were a rare breed and that most men would not listen, particularly for three or four hours a day, to some woman because they would feel as though she were nagging to get her point across. I didn't believe it then, and I certainly don't believe it today. Women are thoughtful and considerate and very well educated today, so of course they're drawn to talk radio, where conversation is a step above the usual. It's not water cooler conversation anymore. It's more like academic conversation. And I'm grateful that I have an audience comprised of wonderful men and great women. I wanted to share with you something that I saw. There's a YouTube influencer. And I know people of my generation really don't understand this whole influencer marketplace. But these are people who get online and develop huge audiences and followings of people who would take their advice or follow their fashion Uh, trends or use the makeup that they tell you to use or even how to apply it. And I saw this interesting YouTube influencer by the name of She-Ra Seven, and she was giving advice for young women. So I'm really telling women this and hoping that men will listen like voyeurs at the stall door. Men do not love you, she said, okay? So stop thinking that they do. They tolerate you. They lust you. That's it. To single ladies, she offers the following on sex. The longer you hold off, the more that he will like you. To married ones, don't give it up every time he wants it. Make him wait, make him work for it, still. Gotta make him chase. This chase strategy, promoted by straight-talking female influencers with lush lips and eyelash extensions, is everywhere at the moment, proliferating under tic-tac hashtags such as feminine energy and law of attraction. The women who swear by it have been compared with the pickup artist and the alleged human trafficker, Andrew Tate, which has provoked a whole host of articles explaining why this comparison is extremely wrong and offensive. But it's easy to see how these women might serve as a sort of funhouse mirror to the manosphere pickup artists. And yet, the advice that's pumped out by Shira Seven and her kind appears to have much less in common with its contemporary male counterpart than it does with the self-help gurus of eras past. At least superficially, Gotta Make Him Chase is just a reboot of Play Hard to Get, 
a central tenet of one of the 1995's best-selling books, The Rules. Subtitled, Time-Tested Secrets for Capturing the Heart of Mr. Right, it effectively schooled young single women in the art of entrapping, that is, uh, enticing a man. The rules number in the dozens, but they all circle the same fundamental thesis, that a woman must use her feminine wiles to stoke a man's prey drive, just as hunters use fake rabbits on a string to train their hounds. On this front, the rule differs very little from the advice of contemporary dating influencers or indeed the archaic courtship norms that ruled before the sexual revolution. And as with the YouTubers whose cash app usernames are prominently displayed on their video content, then as now, there was a certain amount of grift involved. A Time Magazine article from 1996 announced, The Rules is not just a book, it's a movement. Around the country, rules girls are paying $45 a pop to attend rules seminars and forking over 250 bucks an hour for phone consultations with authors Ellen Fine and Sherry Schneider, neither of whom is a credentialed anything. Of course, the influencers would say that their own lives are credentials enough. They are, after all, the patient zero success story for the strategies they're selling. In the 90s, the women who wrote the rules held up their own successful marriages as proof that their method worked. Today, in a YouTube video entitled How to Receive Princess Treatment with 1 Million Views, the wizard Liz says, I want you to look at this video and think, whoa, if Liz expects this much from her partner, then maybe I can expect my partner to at least give me some respect. That this brand of self-help is having a resurgence right now is hardly surprising. The sexual revolution, whatever its benefits, also blew up virtually all the social structures and strictures that used to regulate romantic entanglements, leaving young people to navigate a lawless, chaotic landscape in which there's no guarantee that the person you're sleeping with even likes you, let alone intends to commit. Almost every trend in this sphere from the demisexuals who insist that requiring an emotional connection before sex represents a protected identity category to the ubiquitous therapy speak that turns ordinary disappointments into pathologies represents an attempt by young women to reestablish some sort of order to make their romantic and sexual lives make some sense. And when young women are less likely to be looking for Mr. Right than hunting for the red flags that reveal a man to be undateable, it's not hard to see the appeal of imposing a rigid framework on the whole endeavor, even if that framework is rooted in manipulation and pretense. And yet, there is one major difference for the rules girl. All this romantic espionage was ultimately a marriage plot. Yes, there was a material element, the big honking diamond ring on the book's cover isn't exactly subtle, but there was also the question right there in the subtitle of a man's heart and how to ensnare it. The end game was love, marriage, a committed partnership. The end game was finding your person. The new rules-esque paradigm, on the other hand, wants little to do with that. The woman who successfully employs these methods isn't loved. She's pampered, paid for, and worshipped like the goddess she is. If marriage is mentioned, it's as a business arrangement, one in which the woman trades her presence, and if her husband plays his cards right, sex, for being kept in the manner to which she's accustomed. Men are meant to be milked for all they're worth and summarily discarded the moment they step out of line. One of the movement's biggest influencers, Chidera Egore, 
accidentally got her start as an evangelist for the Dump Him School of Feminism, which is exactly what it sounds like. The central thesis is that any relationship that makes demands on a woman's time, energy, and attention, which is to say every relationship ever, is better off terminated so that she can focus on the only thing that truly matters, herself. Posting under the moniker Slumflower, Egore bemoans the internalized misogyny of heterosexual women who yearn to fall in love, who see any value in it at all. You are the beginning and end of everything wonderful that could ever occur in your life, she has written. Other influencers, such as Shira Seven, insist that romantic love itself is a lie and a pipe dream. If you want to experience real love, she advises, your best bet is to have children. Given how hard it leans into a certain variety of hardline gender stereotyping, you'd think the business-minded dating strategy peddled by the influencers would overlap with the burgeoning tradition of such spicy hot takes as can we at least admit a chick not being a virgin on her wedding day is equally as bad as a man cheating? In fact, it has far more parallels with a mainstream hashtag MeToo era, progressive view of relationships, one in which love and lust and fondness are replaced by a bleak, transactional vision of romance, in which the only meaningful currency is power, and the only thing that matters is who is wielding it. As such, perhaps it's no surprise that some people, including the influencers themselves, insist that there's something feminist about all this. Mainly, this seems like the result of a confusing power, the kind a woman can wield over a man through manipulation and subterfuge with the empowerment of women at large. So if the man is reduced to an object, say his wallet, and the woman gets what she wants, the woman wins. And hence, feminism? As one outraged letter to the editor from a reader who took exception to the Andrew Tate comparisons insisted, some women tackle power inequalities in society by the manipulation, exploitation, or indeed humiliation of men. But this takes place within the context of the gender hierarchy where men retain preeminence. Granted, if you imagine that women are the eternal underdog in a relationship landscape ruled by patriarchy, it's possible to convince yourself that literally anything you do at the expense of a man, including batting your eyelashes until he buys your shoes, is a form of female empowerment. Just ignore the part where it reinforces rather than subverts every gendered stereotype of women as hypergamers, gold diggers. This is how men who manipulate women's psychology to get them into bed can be derided as loathsome misogynists, while women who take a similar approach with men are, oh, they're so cool and they're all the way home. But they're both playing the same game. Indeed, they couldn't exist without each other. And more than that, they're making the same mistake with their suspicious, mistrustful approach to the opposite sex. The pickup artists instruct that women need to be tricked into giving up sex, their sole asset in the dating marketplace. The dump em feminists do the same with men and their money. What both fail to understand, or maybe don't want to, is that the desire for love and companionship doesn't break down along gendered lines. Most people want to fall in love. Most people want to find a partner, and most people understand that these desires are not grotesque weaknesses, but a normal, and if you're lucky, wonderful part of the human experience. 
Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I bring this subject up because I met a young woman at a family gathering just the other day who literally has a beautiful little baby, almost two years old, and when introduced to the baby daddy, she said, oh, I'm not interested in marrying him or even of being with him. I just wanted to have a baby. And I thought to myself, that's transactional at the very least. But again, I'm just trying to catch up and figure out what it is that young women are thinking these days. And then I thought about the case of Lucy Letby, the neonatal nurse who murdered seven babies and then tried to murder six others and probably attacked even more babies in her care at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Great Britain between 2015 and 2016. And this is a story that's unbearably distressing. The descriptions of the pain she deliberately caused these tiny infants and the agony of the parents whom she robbed of their children are extremely difficult to read. She was jailed for life and sentenced to die in prison, but bafflement over her motives was superseded by fury over the behavior of the hospital managers who had dismissed doctors' concerns linking her to a number of inexplicable baby deaths. These managers were thus responsible for enabling Letby to continue to attack and murder babies in the hospital's care. Worse still, they actually turned on the doctors attempting to blow the whistle and found them at fault for accusing Letby of murder and forced them to apologize to her. Grotesque and appalling as these events were in themselves, three broader and interrelated factors need to be considered. The National Health Service, the nursing profession, and the role of feminism. All three, we must conclude, have become in combination positively lethal, as has been all too apparent for many years to those of us with eyes to see, these institutions are chronically failed institutions. At the British Royal Infirmary in the late 1980s and early 1990s, babies died at higher rates after cardiac surgery. An inquiry found staff shortages, a lack of leadership, an old boy's culture among doctors, a lax approach to safety, secrecy about doctors' performance, and a lack of monitoring by management. At Furness Hospital in Barrow, between 2004 and 2013, a lethal mix of failings at almost every level led to the unnecessary deaths of one mother and 11 babies in the maternity ward. From 2005 to 2009 at Stafford Hospital, between 400 and 1,200 patients died as a result of shocking neglect of patients, including leaving them unwashed for a month, putting food and drink out of their reach, and ignoring calls for help to use the toilet, with the result that they were left in soiled sheeting or sitting on commodes for hours. Between 2009 and 2020 at the East Kent Hospital Trust, dozens of babies and mothers died or were injured during childbirth because of repeated failings in maternity care. 
the trust reportedly allowed huge tensions within its maternity workforce to continue, got rid of managers who tried to address the problems, and in some cases, even blamed mothers for the death of their child. Between 2000 and 2019 at the Shrewsbury and Telford Trust, hundreds of babies were left brain damaged or dead as a result of an ideological obsession with natural childbirth, which prevented necessary cesareans from taking place, as well as insufficient provision of safety training for staff. In Nottingham, yet another inquiry is currently underway into 1,700 cases after dozens of babies died or were left with serious injuries in maternity wards at the Queen's Medical Center and City Hospital. Despite all this evidence and more of gross institutional failings, it remains a sacred cow. No political party is prepared to state the obvious fact that it's simply not fit for purpose. Obviously, there are many of the staff in every field doing an exemplary job in saving lives and caring properly for patients, but as an institution, it is deeply and irredeemably dysfunctional. A key reason for this is its enormous bureaucracy, which recruits useless and incompetent managers whom it routinely fails to fire, but often moves to other posts or even promotes to higher positions. It has created a vast empire of managers who are in the business of perpetuating themselves and their perks and covering up the evidence when things go badly and go wrong. Safeguarding its reputation rather than its patients, it regularly treats whistleblowers appallingly. Its Byzantine management structure ensures an almost total absence of accountability. Its remedy for its own ills is to reach out to management consultants, rearrange the managerial deck chairs, and recruit yet more managers. Sound familiar? Yes, because it's happening in hospitals and institutions all over America as well. Another factor feeds into this institutional dysfunctionality. A number of the managers are nurses who have been promoted to senior positions. I happen to know a nurse who tells me regularly about the lack of patient understanding and care by the part of the administrators. An important but underreported feature of the Let Be scandal was that some of the managers who dismissed the doctor's concerns were either nursing managers or former nurses. Their indifferent, contemptuous, or even vengeful treatment of the doctors trying to blow the whistle was almost certainly infused with the resentment of the medical profession felt by many nurses who loathe male doctors for allegedly looking down on them as their professional and social inferiors, not the least these nurses believe because most nurses are women. And over years, I have watched the corruption of the nursing ethic by a pernicious, man-hating feminist ideology. In October of 2007, Melanie Phillips wrote in the mail about a scandal involving three hospitals in Kent where at least 90 patients had died from a superbug infection caused by filthy conditions with unwashed bedpans, staff too busy to clean their hands, and nurses telling patients with diarrhea to go in their beds. The previous year, an internal memo had warned the government that virtually every hospital was reporting a superbug infection. Then, a principal cause was the collapse of the ethic of caring first, promulgated by the inventor of modern nursing, Florence Nottingale. Of course, there are still many dedicated and caring nurses, I know many of them, of whom Nightingale would be proud. But in general, 
Her ethic has been all but destroyed. With her strongly Christian perspective, Nightingale held that nursing was a vocation and its duties were moral acts putting the care and dignity of the patient before anything else. Accordingly, lowly functions such as washing, dressing, and administering bedpans, where dignity was most fragile, were the functions that nursing invested with the highest possible significance. If a nurse declined to do these kinds of things for her patient because she was so concerned about her own status, said Nightingale, nursing was not her calling. This ethic of care was destroyed in the 1980s and the 1990s when nursing underwent a revolution. Under the influence of feminist thinking, its leaders decided that nurses were treated like skivvies by doctors who were mostly men. In America and Australia, as well as in Britain, feminist theorists taught that nurses were the victims of a patriarchal society. Administering bedpans and bedbaths to patients was viewed as an affront to the dignity of nurses. In the Bulletin of the History of Medicine in 2009, Kara Dixon Vuick wrote about a book on American nursing and second-wave feminism. In short, second-wave feminism provided the language, rationale, and strategy with which nursing could end its historic ties to feminine deference and subordination, even if all nurses did not identify as feminists. As more nurses pursued higher degrees and developed a nursing theory that defined nursing's intellectual foundation and basis as an academic discipline, nurses wrested control of education from physicians. The American Nurses Association began advocating for a broader educational foundation, the addition of courses on women's history and electives in nursing specializations, and a thorough purging of all stereotypically feminine indoctrination. To achieve equality for women, nursing had to gain equal status with medicine. So nurse training was taken away from the hospitals and turned into an academic subject taught in universities. This directly contraindicated an explicit warning given by Florence Nightingale herself that her sisters should steer clear of the jargon about the rights of women, which urges women to do all that men do, including the medical and other professions, merely because men do it, and without regard to whether this is the best that women can do. That, however, was exactly what the nursing establishment proceeded to do. Since caring for patients was now considered demeaning to women, it could no longer be the cardinal principle of nursing. Instead, the primary goal became to realize the potential of the nurse, to deliver equality with the male-dominated medical profession. In her book, The Project 2000 Nurse, Anne Bradshaw, a specialist in palliative care, described how this agenda removed caring, kindness, compassion, and dedication from nurse training. Student nurses now studied courses such as sociology, gender studies, politics, psychology, microbiology, and management. They were assessed for their communication, management, problem-solving, and analytical skills. Specific clinical nursing skills were not mentioned, she wrote. In short, nurses became too grand to care. And that's why nurses became managers and preen themselves as expert professionals in meetings and seminars and conferences and away days, while patients in their hospitals are left to die in their own filth. 
and that was one of the reasons why managers at the Countess of Chester Hospital refused for so long to take action against Lucy Letby and turned instead on the male doctors vainly trying to warn them. Letby murdered those babies, but the nursing profession and the man-hating feminist ideologues also have blood on their hands. And that's why I constantly say that there is a quality to certain types of feminism that's anti-human. It removes the human component of what a woman actually is. I have no problem admitting that I have far more compassion than most men and will always reach out with a helping hand. I can't walk by the homeless. I can't drive by someone who's got bodily injuries and is looking for a handout. But I know a lot of men who can. And that's why feminism may have destroyed the best part of being a woman, which is this kindness, this caring, and this loving compassion that I prize above all of my other characteristics. By the way, there's a new revelation, as long as we're talking about women. I believe there are a lot of women in power right now, whether as district attorneys or judges, who should never have been placed in those positions. They are placed there primarily because of their gender. And in a shocking turn of events, a bombshell investigation has uncovered some jaw-dropping connections between Fannie Willis and a sprawling web of election fraud and money laundering activities. Fannie Willis's involvement will be sure to send shockwaves through the political landscape because, of course, she's the district attorney in Atlanta, Georgia, prosecuting former President Donald Trump. The investigation, which spans across multiple states and multiple jurisdictions, has revealed a complex network of illicit operations aimed at undermining the very foundation of our constitutional republic and the rule of law. Sources close to the matter suggest that Willis was a massive beneficiary in the federal and Georgia RICO enterprises. It appears that she is currently playing a key role in orchestrating a systematic scheme to manipulate election outcomes, casting doubt on the integrity of the entire electoral process. In the lead-up to the 2022 midterm elections, the team of Chris Gleason uncovered a massive money-laundering network of campaign finance contributions being made via ActBlue. One of the top beneficiaries of this money-laundering RICO enterprise was none other than Georgia Senator Ralph Warnock. As the investigation progressed, they expanded their efforts into other states. And working with investigative journalist Stephen Kovac, they made a stunning find. Many of the top ActBlue contributors never made the individual contributions. Many of these not-employed individual contributors, as they were named, were the victims of a highly sophisticated money laundering scheme. The scheme was further exposed when data was provided to James O'Keefe and his people, who captured many of these unwitting money laundering smurfs in Maryland. The massive ongoing money laundering operation involves wire fraud, evasion of campaign finance limits, structuring of financial transactions, tax fraud, nonprofit fraud, identity theft, and elder abuse. The RICO operation is still in operation today. Using the identities of unwitting elderly and other Democrat voters, this massive RICO money laundering enterprise is the fuel for the entire election fraud RICO operation. So pretty interesting that DAs like Alvin Bragg, who is also prosecuting Donald Trump, and Fannie Willis are all the recipients of large amounts of money. 
you basically can buy the justice you want. They did it in Wisconsin with the election of Janet Protasuiz. The Janet for Justice campaign took in massive amounts of money from individual contributors who were also identified as part of the nationwide Act Blue money laundering RICO enterprise. So how much money does it take to buy a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court in 2023? Over $23 million was raised, mostly from leftist PACs funded largely through Soros-linked organizations and the ActBlue money laundering enterprise. And the information on Fannie Willis's campaign contributions was obtained strictly and directly from the state of Georgia campaign finance database. And you can see it at Gateway Pundit. Many of the campaign contributions to the Fannie Willis campaign were from out-of-state contributors, and many of them fit the profile of the ActBlue money laundering scheme victims and participants that had been identified in every single state across America. And these are the people prosecuting Donald Trump for election irregularities? I rest my case. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.